I'm jumping in with a quick message that I've added to all HR Coffee Time episodes to let you know that my group programme, Inspiring HR, is back. In case you haven't heard of it before, it's an intensive six-week programme for mid and senior level HR and people professionals. So if you're an HR business partner, HR manager, head of HR or HR director, or the people equivalent, so a people business partner, people manager, head of people or people director, and you'd like to build your confidence, your credibility and your impact at work, Inspiring HR could be perfect for you. We get started on Wednesday the 5th of June 2024 when we'll be meeting up over Zoom for two hours every week. The group sessions are a blend of group coaching, training and facilitation. They're supportive, encouraging and practical and each week has a slightly different focus. So in week one, we look at setting yourself up for success. Week two is about boosting your confidence. Week three focuses on being strategic in your role. Week four is all about building key relationships. Week five takes a deep dive into influencing at a senior level. And the final week looks at planning for the future. There's a link with the full details in the show notes for you. Or you can learn more by going to my website, Bright Sky Career Coaching, clicking on services and then clicking on Inspiring HR Group Programme. I would love to have you join us and to get to know you throughout the programme. But if you have any questions about Inspiring HR at all, please feel free to ask by getting in touch through the website and I would be very happy to answer them for you. Welcome to the second episode of the HR Coffee Time podcast a podcast that I've created especially for you to help you have a successful and fulfilling HR career without having to work yourself into the ground in what can be a really busy and demanding role. I'm your host, Faye Wallace, and it is wonderful to have you here listening. If we haven't met before, I'm a career coach and an outplacement specialist with a background in HR, and I'm also the founder of Bright Sky Career Coaching. In this episode, I've got a great interview for you with Julie Jones. She is a fantastic employment lawyer and she very generously shares the answers to the top 10 questions that she's asked about handling redundancies from her clients. She covers several things that I'd never really thought about before and has some really practical advice and tips for you. So if you have redundancies for the business looming, this episode is going to be a big help. But if you don't think you're going to have to make redundancies anytime soon, it's still definitely worth listening to as there are lots of gems in here that will be really useful to have stored away, ready to take action on whenever you are in that situation. And you probably already know that the rules for the way redundancies are handled are different if less than 20 people are facing redundancy than if more than 20 people are facing redundancy. So Julie and I thought it would just be way too much information to cram into one episode if we tried to cover off both types. But I'm sure that it's something we'll cover again in the podcast in the future. So for this episode, we're just going to be talking about redundancies where fewer than 20 people are facing losing their roles. 
Now, I know that you might be listening to this while you're walking the dog or you're doing the cooking or you might be like me. I tend to listen to podcasts when I'm putting on my makeup in the mornings and that probably means that you haven't got a pen and paper to hand. So if you're listening to the episode and you think, oh no, I'm going to forget all of this, please don't worry. I'm going to turn it into a blog as well and I'll put it on my website, which is www brightskycareercoaching.co.uk and actually on there there are several other resources as well that are focused on supporting you with handling redundancies so it's probably well worth a look anyway if you are in the situation of having redundancies coming up. But now let's move on and get on with the main part of the show. It's time for you to meet Julie and hear all of her words of wisdom. Welcome to the show, Julie. It is so good to have you here, especially as you're one of my very first guests on the podcast. That's my pleasure. I'm excited to be here, Fern. I know that you have a wealth of knowledge about handling redundancies that you're very kindly going to share with us today. But before we dive straight into the topic, it would be great if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and also about Starford. Okay, so my name is Julie Jones. I am an employment lawyer. I have been an employment lawyer for about 20 years and without telling you my age, you can probably guess that law was my second career. And I became a partner in the employment team at a large regional law firm. But then I decided about six years ago that actually I wanted to work with clients in a slightly different way, be more integral in terms of their team, And so uh, I left and set up my own business, which is Starford Legal HR, and we are a consultancy. So everybody that works with Starford is a consultant. We're lawyers and we're senior HR consultants, and we work very closely with all of our clients, generally speaking, as part of their teams to support them in ensuring that they get it right with regards to employing their staff. And so I've been doing that for six years. It's been working very well. We work 99% of our work is with employer clients. And we have a great range of clients from professional service firms, education clients, charity clients, manufacturing clients. We don't specialize in a particular area. We specialize in providing that support and advice uh, in relation to employment. Thanks, Julie. It's so great to hear all of that information so that everyone's got a bit more context and knows that little bit more about you and about the business. And I'd like to start our chat by pointing out that most people who work in HR don't relish the thought of making redundancies. It can be a really stressful process for everyone involved because as well as trying to make sure you're doing your absolute best by the people in the organisation, by making the process as supportive and as painless as possible, there's also the legal side to consider, which I know from when I used to work in HR can feel really daunting especially because it can be quite different, can't it, depending on the number of employees facing redundancy? Absolutely. 20 is the magic number in redundancy. So there's a process of managing redundancies when your total number of redundancies is fewer than 20 and a completely different process when it is more than 20. So today I think we're we're focusing on redundancies when the total number is fewer than 20 because that makes it slightly more slightly more straightforward. The other thing that I would say, Faye, 
you're right, it is daunting when you're facing redundancies. It's daunting from a personal perspective because you're dealing with emotions of individuals, but it's also daunting from the legal perspective. But what I always say with my clients when they're faced with having to make redundancies, perhaps because they need to reorganize their business structure, whatever it might be, is that redundancy is a no-fault dismissal. It's not the fault of the employee that you are making them redundant because you've determined that actually your business needs reorganizing uh, or you need to close uh, either your business totally or part of your business. But it's also not the fault of the employer. The employer is entitled to make those commercial decisions to run their business in the best way possible. So I think as HR, if you approach it as knowing that it's a no fault dismissal, then it makes it slightly easier emotionally. I totally agree. I think it's so important to try and think of ways to make this easier emotionally on everybody. And it's one of the reasons that I really like your work and speaking to you about these things, Julie, because you're not just coming at it from a, this is a black and white legal, you've got to do this correctly from in the eyes of the laws perspective. You do also care about the people that you're speaking to and helping and want to make sure everything's approached in a compassionate way as well. I do. I do. And, and also because as I said earlier, law is my second career. What I did before I qualified as a lawyer was I ran my own business. So I have sat where my clients have sat as an employer of individuals. I've had to have those very difficult conversations with staff. I've had to make redundancies. I've had to carry out dismissals. So I know what that feels like. And I know that it is very difficult sometimes to have those conversations uh, and knowing that, you know, the message that you're delivering to that particular individual, it's not going to land well. The individual is going to feel upset. And that's hard for both parties. So I get that. I understand that. And so building on this idea of it being hard, let's move on to the questions around the legal side of handling redundancies. And as you answer these questions day in, day out for your clients, you have very kindly sent me a list of the ones that you're asked the most as we realised that it's very likely that anyone listening to this may have some of these questions themselves. So thank you so much for that, Julie. And I'm really intrigued to hear what you're going to say to answer this first question, because I know it's a real genuine concern that can come up when you're making redundancies. It's where there are individuals who volunteer for redundancy, and there are more volunteers than redundancy places, what should you do? Well, what you should do is make sure you've prepared the ground before you ask for volunteers for redundancy. So the way you do it is to make sure that when you're asking for volunteers and you should do this in writing, you make it very clear in your written communication that actually just because somebody volunteers for the redundancy doesn't mean that they will be accepted for redundancy. So the first thing you do in any redundancy is you have to establish what is your business reason? What is the reason that you're having to reduce the number of people uh, in your workforce. So what is your business reason for redundancy? And then you can ask for volunteers. But as I say, you just must make it clear that you won't necessarily accept them if they volunteer. Now, the problem that you have with that, the practical problem with that, is that you've got people who come forward and volunteer and you say, actually, Fred, no, we need, you know, we want to keep you. We don't want to accept you as a volunteer. 
your problem is that Fred, in his head, actually has decided he perhaps doesn't want to work in your organisation anymore. He'd like to be made redundant. And you've got an employee re retained in your organisation who is perhaps disgruntled because they didn't get the redundancy package they thought they were going to get or has low morale because, again, you know, in their head, they'd already moved on. They volunteered for redundancy. They felt they were going to get accepted and they'd already planned what their future is. So you've got to consider how you might manage on a practical basis somebody who you have turned down for a voluntary redundancy. But as long as you have set out in the letter that you write to everybody asking for volunteers that you won't necessarily accept them for, on a legal basis you you know you don't have to accept the volunteers you might do it and, and again it depends uh, and and this podcast Faye, is going to be littered with the words it depends very good lawyers words but it does rather uh, depend on the business reason for the redundancy and you know who who comes forward you might, for example, say, well, we, we'll accept volunteers only from this sector, because this is the sector where actually we need we have a reduced requirement, rather than saying to the whole business, does anybody want to volunteer for redundancy? But I think, you know, legally, you don't have to accept them as long as you've set that out. But it's more about the practical. How do you deal with people who perhaps are disappointed because they weren't selected for redundancy? Mm, and have you seen any of your clients handle this particularly well? I think the ones that handle it well are the ones where they've really given thought to it beforehand. Uh, they've really given thought to the areas where they know they're going to be making redundancies. I, I can think of one particular client where actually they were making redundancies. They did ask for volunteers and actually, and they made it clear that they wouldn't accept every volunteer. Uh, and they had to say to some people, no, we still need you in the business. And what they did was they did some team building with them, which really helped them, I think, to value the fact that the employer needed needed to keep them, but also wanted to keep them in the business. And that team building really built the morale back up again. Yes, I think that's probably good practice whenever an organisation's been through a significant change, and particularly with redundancies, because a lot of people will be feeling disheartened afterwards. Even the ones, I think that's what can be underestimated, even the people who have kept their jobs can be feeling upset and disengaged. Absolutely. It's very disruptive in the workplace to carry out any redundancies. People then start to feel vulnerable and concerned about their jobs. And, you know, at the moment, with the pandemic with furlough, with all of those things, people are feeling vulnerable anyway. So yes, I think, you know, that sort of team building, coaching, those sort of tools that you can offer to your workforce are fabulous. Yes, there are so many brilliant team building activities that you can do or arrange nowadays. At Bright Sky, we started offering a team building day or morning this year, which uses DISC, a personality profiling tool that helps everyone in the team to understand each other better and feel closer as a team. But there are so many other things that you can try as well. And instead of me talking about that in too much detail, let's move on to the next question, which is where you have compulsory redundancies, can you have a selection pool of one? Well, again, I'll give you the short answer, which is yes, you can. You do have to be very careful, however, because uh, somebody that's got 
two years service as an employee has the right to bring a claim for unfair dismissal. And when a tribunal is assessing whether or not a dismissal is fair or unfair, they will look at what was the reason, the fair reason for dismissal the employer relied on. And, and as I said before, you know, that that's, it's really important to get that reason right. There are five fair reasons, conduct, capability, redundancy, illegality, and then a sort of catch-all, which is some other substantial reason. So first of all, the tribunal will look at the reason, and if they're satisfied that redundancy was the reason, they will then go on to look at, you know, was it reasonable in all of the circumstances for the employer to make that particular employee redundant? And they'll look at the redundancy process that is gone through, um, and they'll say, well, is it reasonable? Was the dismissal a reasonable response for a reasonable employer in this sector. So when they're looking at the process, they will look at, well, what was the selection pool here? And so was it reasonable to just have a pool of one? Now there is plenty of case law to say a pool of one may well be reasonable. So for example, there was a case where there were a, a number of export managers working for a particular company and each export manager had a, a country sector that they were responsible for country or an area that they were responsible for. One of these eight areas no longer worked with the company, so they were no longer exporting to that area. They decided, the business decided that the export manager working with that area was in a pool of one and should therefore be made redundant. Now the employment tribunal said no, that the pool for selection should have been all eight export managers because they all had interchangeable skills. You know, exporting to South America was the same as exporting to Europe or exporting to the Far East. So the tribunal said no. It went to the Employment Appeal Tribunal, however, and the decision was overturned. And the Employment Appeal Tribunal said no, it was fine for the employer to have a selection pool of one, because actually what they had considered when they considered their pool for selection were the business relationships that each of those export managers had. And this one export manager had business relationships with this country or area that they were no longer exporting to. And he didn't have the same business relationships with any of the other seven export areas. So actually, it, they weren't interchangeable. The skills and the relationships were not interchangeable. So the pool, for, pool of one was fine, but what saved the employer, if you like, in that case, when it got to the Employment Appeal Tribunal, was the fact that they clearly had put their mind to what their selection pool should be. And they thought about why it was only a pool of one. There are many examples where a pool of one, again, is the right pool of one. There was a golf course case where they had a bar steward. They closed their bar, so they no longer had a requirement for the bar steward, that's a pool of one. And his role was made redundant. So there you can do, but what's important to make sure that you have a fair, you followed a fair process is to show, to be able to show that you've set your mind to what your pool of selection is. Yes, actually, that makes me think of my next question. As far as the audit trail is concerned, as you were talking us through that first example, I was thinking, oh my gosh, they must have been so relieved they were able to prove that they'd put that thought in. So what kind of documentation or process do you recommend that people use if they're in this situation? 
Well, if, you, if there's a senior leadership team in, a, in an organization that would be making these decisions, minutes from that meeting or you know some sort of org charts, even emails, anything like that, anything that's documented and in writing is good evidence in a tribunal that actually we have thought about this. You know, we really set our minds to this. I always say to clients when they're thinking of redundancy anyway, set out your business case. What is your business case? For your redundancy put that in writing and as part of that business case you could also then talk about your pools for selection is it just one person that's impacted or actually should you be putting several people in a pool and then carrying out a selection i'm sure that's going to be really helpful for anyone who's listening to this and wondering about making just one person redundant so thank you very much and I'm now going to move on to the next question, which is how to determine a criteria for selection. Yes, well, it is for the employer, for the company to determine what is the best selection criteria for them. Clearly, you do not want a criteria that targets certain groups of individuals. You don't want a criteria that targets women so that women are going to be you know, scored with a lower score. So try and keep your, your selection criteria objective. You know, you could think about it from the from the term point of view of, of performance. Have you got, you know, clear performance attainment that you can point to? So uh, appraisals, that sort of thing, where you can go in and say, okay, these are the scores that these people got and therefore their performance sits above this person's performance. Attendance, you can look at. Attendance can be a little tricky because obviously you'll need to discount anybody who's got a disability and perhaps has been absent because of their disability or for a reason related to it. You've got to be careful with pregnancy and maternity, those sorts of things. But attendance can be something that you could put on your criteria, timekeeping, future potential. I know that lots of lots of employers get a little bit worried about very subjective criteria like future potential for the business. But actually, it's perfectly acceptable to have those subjective things as a criteria. What I would suggest, though, is when you've got a selection criteria and you're going to score people against that selection criteria, you have two managers doing the scoring independently so that actually you can do a bit of cross checking to make sure that the scores are more or less the same uh, so that you know that individuals are not being targeted by a particular manager so there's nothing wrong with subjective criteria it, it very much depends on the business on the areas where redundancy is going to impact a tribunal will not interfere with a selection criteria as long as they can see that it's reasonable and has been reasonably arrived at again you might want to consult with the workforce regarding the selection criteria. You could say, this is the criteria we are proposing to use. If anybody has got any concerns or uh, comments about the criteria, then, then let us know. I know that some organizations within their criteria will use a weighting um, mechanism so that certain things are weighted more heavily. I personally think that's just adds to the confusion of the selection criteria, but there's nothing wrong with that. So for example, Disciplinaries, that's a very common, very common criteria in a selection criteria. Has anybody got a live warning on their file, for example, would score a, a minus score? That's very objective. It's very easy to verify somebody has that live warning on their file. And you might want to 
have a waiting on that as a times two waiting because that is really important. But yes, it is for the employer to determine what the criteria is. And as long as it's reasonable, the tribunal will not go behind it. The tribunal won't substitute their own decision for the decision of the employer. All they will do is to look at whether it was reasonable. And how many different types of criteria? Is there some sort of magic number of criteria that you're going to have on your list? Uh, there isn't a magic number. Uh, you don't need, you know, I would say somewhere between five and 10. More than 10 is too many. It gets too confusing. Um, fewer than five, it's not enough. You need, you need at least five, I would say, at least five criteria. I mean, clearly, if we go back to the reasons for redundancy, if the reason we go back to our Exeter office, we're closing our Exeter office, you don't need criteria. You know, the 20 people that, or the 15 people that work in our Exeter office, are going to be made redundant. Oh, I see. So you don't need to always worry about having this no. criteria. No, no. It de- it depends. You know, it depends on the reason behind your redundancy. It's only you only need criteria when you're reducing the number of people because you have a reduced requirement for work to be carried out. So you have a call centre with fifty people, and you determine as a business that we only, you know, we've got new tech in there. We now only need forty people. Therefore, ten need to be made redundant. So your criteria needs to determine which 10 are going to be made redundant. So then you absolutely, you'll have a pool for selection, which might be all 50 of your call center employees. You only need 40, so you score all 50, and the 10 with the lowest score are the 10 that will be made redundant. That makes total sense. And I really like your idea about consulting with the workforce as well about the criteria, because I think as much as you can involve people, it means it's easier for them to accept and they feel they've been part of the process and they can raise valid concerns and also contribute good ideas. But let's move on to the next question now. It's one I hadn't really come across before, but I'm sure it's very relevant to a lot of people listening. And the question is, can employers avoid making redundancies if their employees are on zero hours contracts? Well, it's an interesting question. It's something that came up quite a lot last year with employees working in hospitality. Because though employees working in a particularly front of house hospitality are often on zero hours contracts because, you know, they might do 15 hours one week. They might do 30 hours the next week. They might do no hours the week afterwards. And the question was, well, can we just rely on those zero hours contracts, which say very clearly that we don't have any obligation to offer you any hours? Can we rely on those? And there is no reason that you can't rely on those unless the reality of the employment relationship doesn't reflect that zero hours contract. So if you have a zero hours contract and it's a genuine zero hours contract, meaning that hours fluctuate week on week, sometimes the individual gets no hours, sometimes they get 20 hours, then absolutely you can rely on that zero hours contract to say actually we've got no more hours to to offer you got no hours to offer you it might be weeks it might be months until we can offer you any more hours um if however the reality is every week that individual even though they're on a zero hours contract every week they worked 30 hours then the reality of the contract will trump the written zero hours terms and then you can't then then actually the reality is they're not they're not a genuine zero hours employee and you treat them like any other employee in terms of redundancy 
So I guess with all of these things, one of the messages that's coming through to me loud and clear is you just have to put a little bit of thought into this and apply some common sense into these things. Absolutely. A lot of this is common sense. A lot of this, when I talk to clients about it, 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 it is, you, you know, it is obvious when you say it out loud, it is obvious, you know, talk to people, have your business mm. case, think about the reality of how you work with an individual. But it's not until you actually talk it out loud that sometimes you realise, actually, this is not magic. I do know how to do this. Yes, somehow it stops it from feeling quite as daunting once you've been able to chat it through and properly think it through. And now moving on to a slightly different question, can I ask you, how would you deal with individual consultation with someone who's on maternity leave? Well, the first thing to do is not forget your people who are on maternity leave um, or indeed long term sick leave. It's the same thing. Just because they're out of the business, don't forget them if you're going through a redundancy consultation exercise. Now, clearly, people who are out on maternity leave, there are a number of ways that you might carry out a consultation. You might say to them, would they like to use one of their kit days, their keeping in touch days to come in? to hear about the company's proposals and to have their first consultation meeting. If they don't want to use a kit day, then you could ask them whether they would be comfortable having a, a video call. You know, can we discuss it with you on a video call or a telephone call? If they're not comfortable in doing that, then communicate with them in writing. But you mustn't forget about them. You must let them know what's happening. You must let them know how they are impacted. You must give them every possible opportunity to participate in consultation. The one thing, I won't go into it now because it's quite lengthy and legal, but the thing to remember also with women on maternity leave is that they're in a protected bubble. Think about them as being in a protected bubble. And in terms of alternative employment that might be available in order to avoid their redundancy, any woman on maternity leave goes to the top of the list in terms of an alternative role. So always remember that if somebody on maternity leave is impacted by redundancy, they should have first choice in relation to any alternative role. Oh, so can you just explain that in a little bit more detail? So if there are alternative roles available, what does that really mean about letting them have first choice? Well, if, if there are alternative roles that are available that might avoid redundancy, uh, if the woman on maternity leave has the skills to do that role, she shouldn't be asked to go through any form of competitive selection to be appointed to that role. She should go, as I said, at the top of the list and be placed into that role in preference to anybody else. Well, I had no idea about that. That's a key thing that I've learned today. Thank you, Julie. And OK, so now that we know we have to be extra careful when dealing with anyone who's on maternity leave, let's move on to the next question, which is, what advice would you give an employer who made redundancies but then needed to rehire into the same role sometime later? Well, again, I would say that an employment tribunal would not expect a business to have a crystal ball. So if you've made redundancies because you have a reduced requirement for employees to carry out work of a particular kind, but then six months later, actually the requirement for that work has increased and you need to hire staff, the tribunal would not criticise you for that because you didn't know that that was going to happen. Clearly, if you did know that was going to happen and you went ahead with the redundancies anyway, perhaps because you had 
underperforming team and you thought, well, redundancy is the easiest way to get rid of these people and then I can re-employ, the tribunal would be very unsympathetic to that argument. But, you know, if you genuinely you didn't know that business was going to pick up, then you can re-employ. From a risk perspective, individuals have three months in which to bring a claim to the employment tribunal, three months from the date of their dismissal. It's slightly elongated now because of um, ACAS early conciliation, but essentially, if you're dismissed on the 1st of January, you have until the 1st of April to bring your claim at the tribunal. So if you were going to complain that your redundancy was unfair, it is in that period. So if you're going to rehire after that period, you know that you're safe, uh, relatively speaking, from an unfair dismissal claim. But as I say, it's, it really comes down to why do you need to rehire? And did you know that you were going to rehire when you made these people redundant? And if you didn't, then, you know, a tribunal would not criticise you for that because you don't have that crystal ball. It can be so tricky, can't it? Especially if the business is going through a really tough time financially. Yeah, if it fluctuates, absolutely. I mean, I had a case not that long ago with an architect who had his own practice. He had three architects. Business dropped off a cliff. He made two of them redundant. This is um, back at the beginning of the pandemic. He made two of them redundant. But then, you know, during the summer last year, business picked up again and he had to rehire. Well, you know, none of us knew what was going to happen at the beginning of the pandemic last year. You know, lots of people made redundancies because they thought, actually, this is really impacting my business and I can't afford to keep these people on. So, yes, I mean, from his perspective, uh, he wasn't to know six months later that actually business would be booming again. Well, I'm pleased to hear that his business started booming again. It's nice to hear these positive stories now that we're coming out the other side of the pandemic. And now I'll ask you the next question, which is something I really don't know anything about at all. And the question is, do employers have to consider bumping? So bumping in redundancy is, is something that does worry HR um, professionals. What it means is you're making somebody redundant in a particular area for a particular role and they come to you and say, well, actually, I could do that job in that other area that is not impacted by redundancy at all. I want you to bump that person and put me into that role. There is no legal requirement for you to do that. But again, a tribunal would expect a business to put their mind to why that is not a reasonable suggestion, not reasonable for the employee who is impacted by redundancy and also not reason, not reasonable for that person who might be bumped, who actually wasn't at risk of redundancy in the first place. So you must think about it and you must have your reasons as to why that's not appropriate. Uh, and that might be because the person in the other role has been there a long time, is very good at their job, has slightly different skills, whatever, or different business relationships. There might be lots of reasons why it's not appropriate to bump that person, but you've got to show that you've put your mind to it. Even though we're just talking about this, theoretically, I'm feeling incredibly sorry for this person who's going to end up being bumped out of their role. Yeah. yeah. Have you got an example you could share with us of a situation where that has happened? Um, I think 
first one that I can think about, which involved a secretary, where somebody who was a, an administrator and they were reducing, the company were reducing the number of administrators. And one of the administrators who was impacted said, actually, in my previous job, I was a secretary. I could do the role that Jane is doing. Actually, I want you to bump Jane and put me. And that would, that would then mean that would avoid my redundancy. And the company did think about it. And to be honest, they did think, well, you know, one of the things they thought about was Jane had less than two years service. And obviously, somebody with less than two years service, A, they don't have the right to bring an unfair dismissal claim, and B, they don't have the right to a statutory redundancy mm -hmm. payment. And they did bump Jane and put the administrator into Jane's role because they were satisfied that the administrator had the skills to do Jane's role. As you say, it wasn't very pleasant for Jane, and she had no, no comeback on the company, but the company had thought about it and as, as to why they they decided that was a good idea. Oh, well, that's really helpful to hear. Thank you so much for giving examples. I think it really helps to bring all of these things to life and make them a bit easier to understand and to relate to. So I'm going to ask you the next question on the list now, and it's, can a trial period last longer than four weeks? And this is talking about someone who was going to be made redundant, but actually they've been offered a new role within the organisation. So we've been talking about the fact that it's important to demonstrate that you follow a reasonable process when you are making any redundancies. And one of those things to ensure you follow a reasonable process is to look for any alternative or suitable alternative roles within the organisation that might avoid the need to make that individual redundant. Now, when you're putting somebody into an alternative role, they have the right, statutory right, to four-week trial period. And what that means is during that trial period, both the employer and the employee can determine whether or not this role that you've put the employee into is going to be suitable for them to do, is going to work. And if during or at the end of that four weeks, either party decide actually it's not going to work, the employee says, no, no, it's not for me, or the employer says, actually, I don't think you've got the skills to do this alternative role, then the individual then reverts to the redundancy situation, reverts to to, to the redundancy and the redundancy payment and the dismissal for redundancy. Now, the statutory period is four weeks. If the employee remains in that role for longer than four weeks, then the redundancy falls away. They're no longer redundant and actually they carry on working. So it's, firstly, it's very important if you're gonna put somebody into a trial period in an alternative role to, to manage your dates so that you don't let them slip over the four weeks without you realizing. Um, if you need to do any training for that employee to enable them to do that role, then both sides can agree to extend that trial period. But you can only, from a statutory perspective, you can only extend it if there's a training element involved, if they need additional training to do the role. You can't just extend it because you want it to be a bit like a probationary period that from a statutory redundancy perspective doesn't work. You can't just say, well, four weeks isn't enough, let's make it three months. That doesn't work. Because once they've gone over the four weeks, as I said, the redundancy falls away. So it can only be extended if there is a training requirement. And it must be with the agreement of both 
both sides, both the employee and the employer. Sometimes, and I've got a case at the moment where the employer has said to the employee, I mean, it's not exactly a redundancy, but they've said to the employee, okay, they're in consultation for redundancy. We're going to try you in this alternative role. We're actually going to make it for six months. We're going to trial you. But if at the end of that six months, it is not a suitable role, then we'll go back to the consultation process again, and we'll go through the whole consultation process again. So we won't just make you redundant at that point. We'll start again with, is, is the role, your substantive role, is it redundant? Let's start the consultation process again. So there are situations where the period is longer than four weeks, but I think what you've got to remember, what's important to remember is that from a statutory perspective, that four weeks is is key, mm. unless there's a training element that's required. Yes, because I suppose that's really reassuring for both the employer and the employee that there is a trial period, mm. because otherwise it can be really worrying for either side to think, oh no, what if this doesn't work out? Right. So this is really useful to know. Thanks, Julie. And again, from what you're saying, it seems really important to keep a clear eye on the timeline. Yeah, I mean, the number of times I've seen employers forget to check, you know, not, don't put it, you know, haven't put a calendar note or, or anything. And, and that four weeks has, has slipped over. And then they're like, oh, gosh, we've lost that opportunity now. Oh, no. And uh, the employee is now going to stay in that role. Oh, no. So clearly staying organised and keeping track of all the timelines is really important. And now that brings us on to our very final question about redundancies for today, which is, does the employer have to pay a redundancy payment to someone who is ending a fixed term contract? Well, uh, a fixed term contract, the, the individual is still an employee if they are on a fixed term contract, it makes no difference, they're still an employee. If they have been employed on that fixed term contract for more than two years, and the fixed term contract comes to an end because that project has ended or they're no longer re required to do the work that they were taken on to do, that is a redundancy and they are entitled to a redundancy payment. So just because they were on a fixed term doesn't mean that they're not entitled to the redundancy payment if they've been there for, for two years or more. If they've been there for less than two years, then no, they don't get that redundancy payment anyway because two years is the, is the trigger. What you can't do, and I think it's important to remember, is employees on a fixed term contract have the protection of the fixed term employee regulations. Um, and these regulations give protection to employees who are on fixed term contracts. And one of those protections is you cannot select somebody for redundancy or dismissal just because they're on a fixed term contract. So you can't go through your workforce and think, oh, we're gonna pick him, 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 and him because they're on fixed term contracts, because that is discrimination effectively on the grounds of, the, of them being on a fixed term contract. So just be a bit careful with that. But the answer to the question is, are they entitled to a redundancy payment? If they've been employed for two years, yes, they are. Well, I can't believe how much value you have just provided. Thank you so much. I know that I have learned a huge amount and I'm sure that anyone listening will be feeling exactly the same way. So if after listening to you dispensing all of this wisdom and knowledge, someone thinks, oh, I'd really like to get in touch with Julie, 
or to learn more about your business, Starford, what's the best way of them doing that? Well, probably the best way is to, is to drop me an email. So that's julie.jones at starfordlegalhr.com. Uh, that's the that's the easiest way that will definitely find me or you can go and look at our website which is starford.co.uk www.starford.co.uk so either of those two ways is the easiest way one of the things that we're very proud of at Starford and obviously as I said at the start we have a number of employee employment lawyers who work with us as consultants and a number of senior HR consultants but one of the things we're really proud about is our responsiveness to clients and I know that when when I was a partner in the, my previous law firm, that used to come up time and time again in the feedback surveys was responsiveness. That's something that clients have at the top of their list when they are, are interacting with any lawyer is they want a response. Even if the response is, you know, I've, I've got your email, I will get back to you, it might be later today or it might be tomorrow morning, just some, don't just leave them there hanging. And one thing I say to all of our consultants is always respond quickly to, to whoever's contacting you, even if it's to say, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a response or I'll call you tomorrow. Um, so we will always respond and we will always respond quickly. And I can concur that that is completely true because I know whenever I email you, I think you are the yeah. quickest person I know to reply <laughs> to me. And um, so how about LinkedIn? Are you happy for people to connect with you on LinkedIn as well? Oh, God, yes, absolutely. No, 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 absolutely. They can always find me on LinkedIn. Brilliant. That's great. Thanks, Julie. So now everyone knows how they can get in touch with you. And I have one final thing I'd like to ask you. I've decided that I'm going to ask all of my guests this and then I'll see if I keep it in or not. But the idea is for you to share what your top book recommendation would be, a non-fiction one rather than a fiction one. Yeah. Well, this is not a book about employment law or about um, HR. Actually, it's a book by Rory Sutherland and it's called Alchemy, The Surprising Power of Ideas That Don't Make Sense. It's that fascinating area of human behaviour and behavioural economics. And one of the things during the pandemic, for example, that I found fascinating was people's behaviours when they're put into certain situations and how you can nudge. I mean, it's quite scary, but how those behaviours can be nudged by um, messages that are put out there, perhaps by government, perhaps by companies, perhaps by scientists how those behaviours can be nudged. And so, yes, Rory Sutherland, fantastic, very easy read, a fascinating book, fascinating man, actually. Ooh, I'm going to have to put that on my reading list. I have a huge pile of books that I'm trying to make my way through at the moment, so I'll have to make sure that I add that one to it too. Yeah, I've read it, I've read it twice. <laughs> oh, well, that's always a sign for a good book, isn't it? And that brings us to the end of our chat together today. So thank you again, Julie. It has been wonderful having you on the show and I hope to be able to see you again soon. And that brings us to the end of this episode. If you enjoyed it, please do rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts for me. I'll be hugely grateful. And one last thing to mention is that I have quite a few other resources on my website about supporting staff through redundancies because it's a topic I'm asked about a lot when I'm booked to provide outplacement support. 
If you'd like to track down the other resources, just head over to the website, which is brightskycareercoaching.co.uk. And I'll also put the links to the resources in the show notes of this episode for you. Thank you so much and goodbye for now.